Hi friends, it's Nate, and we're in episode two now of this woman series that we're doing. It's all about reframing God and the Bible. And in episode one, we talked a lot about the gender of God and why it is that we have to kind of unlearn this uh, very male-centric view of God that we have and introducing more feminine, female type of qualities to our picture of God. Yeah, I want to say thank you to everyone who has listened and has reached out about that episode. We were really um, impacted by some of the feedback we were getting from a lot of people who, especially listening to the reading of the Magnificat in that last episode, if you if you haven't listened to it, it's the, the Prayer of Mary that is um, this just famous prayer to, to that's referring to God as He over and over again. Um, but we read it in the original version and then also with the pronoun she. And we just saw a lot of people reaching out to say that something really deep in them just kind of like opened up in that moment, something that I don't maybe know how to put words to, but a lot of people who um, it just, especially women who it caused them to kind of break down and somebody who's tweeted that they were crying in a Walmart um, listening to this. And so I just want to say thank you and continue the journey with us. There's so much healing and so much yet to learn, and I'm just really excited about where we're going. Yeah, there was even someone, um, a few people from the LGBTQ plus community who reached out to say it was it was healing in a way to uh, just to see both of these qualities and sides to God um, all in one character. Like I think that mm-hmm. was. Um, that was really powerful too for me to read. Just to know, I guess you know, it's 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 just amazing to think about what have we been missing here, and mm-hmm. and what potentially could we be opened up to as we think about God in just different ways than we than we have before, both both as men and women. Because um, I know that I really felt a lot of things hearing the Magnificat read that way as well. So yeah, so Shelby, where are we going now? We've t- we kind of teased that we're going to be using the lens of woman to look at the Bible mm-hmm. and to look at how we kind of interpret this thing and what how we approach the Bible, what we expect of it, um, what we get from it, all of that. Um, and so I think we're kind of making that transition now to be talking about the Bible. So wh- where are we going today with that? Yeah, absolutely. The rest of this series really is going to be focusing on the Bible. And even though, as we said, the, the series is, is called Woman and we're using that as our lens, the the real, I think, meat of, of this is about actually how do we read the Bible and how do we see God? Um, and that's going to apply to way more topics than just women, but that's just the one that we're starting with for this series. Um, so today we're going to start digging into that, specifically looking at just the composition of the Bible and uh, how patriarchy is involved, par- partially simply by who did the writing of it, and then also how that impacted um, not only what texts ended up in the Bible, but also how the text in the Bible got shaped to the way they are today. So kind of the, the basic fact that we're starting with, the just number one premise, is that the Bible is written by 100% men. And, and that's... Uh, Something that it's, I think, an easy starting point because nobody's really questioning that. Like, it doesn't really matter where on the spectrum you are, conservative to progressive, or like, we we all basically agree that the Bible is written by all men. Some people think that maybe the book of Hebrews could have been written by a woman, but there's no real evidence behind that. It's just kind of a, a fun theory that might be the case, but um, from what we know, we, we don't know. So, for all we know, the Bible's written by all men. And we can make some conclusions from that, we can start to um, just think about what the implications of that might be without necessarily making any judgments about those men who did the writing. Um, I want to be very clear as, you know, we're talking about women and I'm definitely a a feminist scholar that that doesn't at all mean that I somehow don't like men or hate men. It's, that's not the case at all. And so by pointing out that the Bible is written by all men, I'm not suddenly saying the Bible is bad because can you believe these men wrote it? No, what, what I want to point out and talk about here is just that when you have a text or a collection of texts that are all written by one kind of person, you're by default going to have one kind of a perspective. And so we should talk a little bit about what that looks like. So without making any judgments about the actual men who did this writing, what are some of the implications that we could draw about this collection simply because it was written by men? Yeah, well, I mean, as we talked about in episode one, a lot of experiences are going to be 
missed. Mm. Um, let's say that all of the stories that <laughs> we should have are there. You're still only going to be hearing mm. about them from one perspective, from the male perspective. Probably we, it means we don't have all the stories, though, and now we're missing um, of just a wealth of information about what the women were doing at that time, mm-hmm. um, the the life experiences of women, and uh, probably at that time, the and and still today, but maybe a lot of the child rearing and the right, um, absolutely cooking and things like that, especially in a patriarchal culture um, that they were living in. How do we know what was going on and what they were experiencing? We're going to be missing all of that. Yeah, absolutely. So one of those kind of the main topics there within this is the spaces that. So these characters are in or these people are in. So if these authors are essentially all male, then the spaces that they existed in are going to be, for the most part, the, the male-centric areas. So things that are more like political and more, you know, the the war or the exploration or the, the you know, the, like you said, it's not going to be as much in the home, in the taking care of the children and in the the red tents that the women would occupy for about one week of the month. And those those places don't show up as much in scripture. I mean, you read the Old Testament and often I remember growing up and thinking like, were there kids? Like, were there kids around? <laughs> like, and then you'd often, you'd get that that one line of like, plus women and children or something like mm. that. That was, that was added on to like how many were, <laughs> how many, when they were like counting maybe the number of people or something. But I do remember thinking that I was like, were there? wait, were there kids? Or is this, when I hear this number, is this just the men or? I mean, even in the New Testament, you know, the feeding of the 5,000 is this big story. And then. It's probably actually a bigger miracle. Yeah. It's 5,000 <laughs> men plus women and children. It's like, right. why, why weren't they in the number? Much bigger miracle. <laughs> that would be, would be. I mean, it's a miracle if I can get two kids to eat. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. So another one of the um, elements at play here is which characters get featured. If you have men who are, for the most part, the ones experiencing and writing these texts, then for the most part, the characters that they that are more prominent in those stories are going to be men and then other male counterparts. And for the most part, the women who show up in these stories are going to be um, sisters, wives, daughters of the the men who are most prominent in the story, especially in... Um, in a more ancient culture that had very defined gender roles, a lot more so than today, um, you didn't see men interacting very much with women who weren't their relatives. Like you, they mm-hmm. would interact with a lot of the other men, but they weren't going to be necessarily h- hanging out, having dinner with those men's wives the way that we might all get together for dinner this in this culture. Like it was the the women in your life were probably the women of your family and not much more. So the stories we see throughout the Bible are, for the most part, a, the network of men with um, stories about each other. And part of the way that that becomes a big deal is that the characters, as we're saying, are mostly men. Specifically, of all the named characters in the Bible, everyone who has a name in the Bible, only 15% of those are women. 85% are men. And that's that has some big implications for us as readers of the Bible. If you imagine you know, children, boys or girls, listening to the Bible be read to them or the Bible be taught to them from, you know, on Sunday mornings, and 85% of the characters they come across are men, then, you know, what are some of the natural takeaways that children are going to have from that? I mean, just like real simple level that Mm -hmm. men, boys, they're more important and women are less important. Yeah. I mean, that's, and that's just the numbers. If we just go 85 to 15%, then clearly you would say, oh, well, the 85% is probably more significant. And then you look at who those characters are. And I mean, pretty much all the, the major characters of the Bible. I mean, essentially all. I mean, you've got, you know, these cool heroes like Esther or Ruth or maybe Mary, the mother of Jesus. But, you know, if you had to, if you had to narrow down, like, who are the top 10 most significant characters in the Bible, you'd be lucky to get one woman in that list, I think. So to recap what we've just been covering is just the fact that when you have a collection of texts that are written by all men, you end up with one perspective, one um, angle that is that you're getting. And so you are by default missing a lot of the spaces and the characters that you would have otherwise. Okay, this feels like it's reminding me of a document 
that we have here in the United States um, since our founding, which is the Constitution, mm. which people probably hold to too tightly. Um, but but it's this document that's written by entirely men, white men, mm. um, and and it did it, it did miss the experiences of lots of people, and and some would argue still misses the experiences of mm-hmm, lots of people. Mm-hmm. But I think the difference here is that we all agree that the Constitution is not a perfect document. Mm. It's, it's a document that we want to see become more perfect over the course of history. It's a document that has amendments. Right, right. Which is the admission that something can get better. It's the admission Needed that... Needed to be amended. Exactly. Now, the Bible, there's not as clear of amendments where we go, okay... Here's the Bible, and then we add on this page at the end, and this is. But we do have kind of interpretive amendments where we mm-hmm. uh, we used to maybe interpret it as more pro-slavery, and that has changed. Um, more Earth-centric as Earth in the middle of the solar system or the universe, and we don't interpret it that way anymore. And on the topic of LGBTQ people in the church, that's one that's, you know, <laughs> pretty debated right now, but there's lots of the church that is starting to interpret it to include these people. Um, and and so we have these interpretive amendments that mm-hmm. we make, and this is happening a bit and needs to happen a lot more on the topic of women. Yeah. And I think it's interesting. I mean, when you're saying this about amendments um, and, and interpretive amendments, that's uh, totally true that we kind of change the way we see something. But then I think there's actually one huge example of an actual, in a sense, amendment, like major change that was made to the Bible. Wondering if if this ringing any bells in your head of a very significant person in the history of particularly Protestantism. Well, I mean, Martin Luther, there was a big yeah. schism there uh, about 500 yeah. years ago. So during the Reformation, um, yeah, about 500 years ago, Martin Luther, uh, one of the things that he did was to remove a number of books from the Bible that he felt didn't belong there. For the most part, they are books that were part of the Old Testament that he didn't think belonged there because they were not original to the Hebrew Bible. Like they were only found in Greek. And so he said, oh, these are later editions and we shouldn't keep them. So he, he removed them. Um, and put them in a category called the Apocrypha. And I mean, at that point, like, think about, think about how the Christianity has been around for 1500 years at that point. Hmm. And the, the Bible that he was literally removing books from had been in use for over a thousand years. I mean, imagine if somebody did that today, if somebody said, ah, I think there's a few books here that we shouldn't read anymore. How about first, second Timothy? That would be my suggestion. Um, <laughs> Then, and we just take them out. Like there would be uproar, particularly among um, the Protestants, I believe. And yet that's actually the the place that um, Protestantism started from was saying, we think that the Bible uh, needs to be edited, needs to be changed, should, that we should see some of these books differently. You liked a tweet the other day that said, um, I do find Protestants complaining about deconstruction <laughs> ironic. Oh, yeah. I have greatly appreciated that tweet and I say things like that often Um, because, yeah, basically the foundation of Protestantism is to challenge the status quo and say we're doing this all wrong. And yet a lot of people who are part of, you know, what we're calling deconstruction nowadays are essentially shamed for doing that same thing, saying, I think something's wrong here. I think we're doing this wrong and I think the status quo is potentially wrong. So... All that to say, um, what could seem radical right now might actually be accepted um, within a few hundred years and maybe is actually a change for the better. Mm. But but I specifically did want to bring up that point about Martin Luther because, as I said, we were going to address a bit about books that are in the Bible and books that aren't. And so um, one of the books in the Catholic Apocrypha, so this is a text that was in the Christian Bible for you know, 1500 years, essentially, and that Martin Luther then decided to remove one of those, it's called the book of Judith. And if, if anyone spent time in the Catholic church, they may be familiar with this story already, but for the most part, anyone in in Protestant churches has never even really heard of it. Um, We, we almost treat those books like they're some, you know, dangerous heresy, which is not even what Martin Luther meant. He just thought they weren't original. So he even said, these are good books that we should learn from, but 
they shouldn't be part of our sacred texts, which is a, a very different attitude than we have today. But anyway, this book of Judith is, she's the most incredible female heroine that I've ever come across. When I read this book, which I would encourage anyone to go read, it's only a few chapters long, um, she, she totally changes the picture of what you see women doing in um, this picture of ancient Israel. So essentially, she's, she's a, a widow, but she's not like a Ruth and Naomi, you know, woe is me kind of a widow. She's fairly uh, wealthy and is incredibly beautiful and ver- and refuses to, to marry, doesn't want anything to do with anyone. And then Israel, or not Israel, but whatever town she's part of, is surrounded by the enemy and they all don't know what to do. We're all going to die. And Judith says, okay, let me just take this into my own hands. And she waltzes out of the city all on her own and then uh, goes over to the enemy enemy camp, essentially seduces their leader. And as when he's taking her into his bedroom, before he can do anything, she just cuts off his head and carries the head back over to, um, to her town. And they all celebrate the victory and everyone wants to marry her. And she says no. And that's the end of the story. Wow. (laughs) And it's, so it, it really is a very different kind of a woman than even some of the best female heroines that we have in the rest of the Bible. I think of like Esther or Ruth. Those are kind of two of the main women from the Old Testament that we look to, you know, if you're going to have your typical women's Bible study, you know, the yep. great women of the Bible, those, I mean, probably because those are the only other two women who have a book named after them. Yeah. And they are incredible stories and have a lot of beauty to them. But in both of those cases, those women are um, very much uh, participating in the patriarchal structure that they're in. So like Esther, you know, she's, she's making these very bold moves and risking her own life, but she's doing it um, at the command of her uncle, she's doing it under the the rule of her husband, and it's it's uh, really a story about the um, Mordecai and the king, and Esther is like this pawn that goes between them, who has to be willing to lose her life. And then Ruth um, is another story of a, a a brave woman who works hard and puts herself in situations to try and help her mother in law. But she's very much at the whim of the men, at the whim of Boaz. And she goes, I mean, literally lays at his feet is like the big move of the story. So that's, those are very different than Judith, who doesn't, doesn't have a husband from the beginning of the story to the end. Doesn't, there's no male relative in this whole thing. Goes and <laughs> slices off someone's head and comes back and says, I'm just going to keep living my life the way I did before. Thank you. Um, so I think it's interesting that that story is the one that got removed. Okay, so why? Why did Martin Luther decide to remove these books and not the others? What was the decision process there? Right. So uh, like I briefly mentioned, he didn't, most of the books that he removed are ones that he didn't believe were original to the Hebrew Bible. So it really pushes us back to another question is why wasn't Judith in the Hebrew Bible? Um, Essentially, to get a little more nitty gritty here, the books that are in what's called the Apocrypha, which are the books that Martin Luther chose to remove from the Old Testament, um, at the time of Martin Luther, we only had copies of those books in Greek. There were no Hebrew originals. And so that's how he determined, oh, these books, if they were never written in Hebrew, then they aren't, they really aren't authentic to be in the Old Testament. They shouldn't be in the Old Testament if there's no Hebrew basis for them. If they're only in Greek, they were a later edition. That was basically his logic, put simply. So what's what's interesting, an interesting tidbit, is one of those books is the book of Tobit, which is a cool little story. And Martin Luther removed it because it was only in Greek. But then actually in the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls less than 100 years ago, there were several copies of Tobit in both Hebrew and Aramaic. Mm. Um, and so essentially if if Martin Luther had known about the Dead Sea Scrolls, Tobit would still be in our Bibles today. So wow. it's it's very much a human process based on what information was accessible to them. And if we discover a Hebrew copy of Judith somewhere, then that same story would be true. Wow. But back to the question that you were asking and that I was pushing back to what, you know, maybe why was Judith not in the Hebrew Bible to begin with? There are a lot of scholars who think it actually is because of the way that Judith pushes against the patriarchal norms, that, that that could be why that story wasn't included in the Hebrew Bible by the ancient Jewish audience. That those the Jewish audience 
these the men who were kind of collecting the texts that consider were more authoritative that they accepted Esther and they accepted Ruth because these were stories that they highlighted women but they weren't destroying kind of the social norms and the gender roles whereas a story like Judith was a little bit threatening to the status quo um, whether or not that's actually how how it went is is hard to know but there's some research and some scholars who believe that that kind of a patriarchal influence could be why a story like Judith wasn't prioritized to be part of scripture. Yeah, it is fascinating to try to like think back and be like, what what it could it have been that kept a book like this out? Was it something that we would call today like silencing those voices? But maybe there was less negative motive there. Maybe they was just like trying to make something that was more palatable to the time they were in and fit in that time. And mm-hmm. so I'm trying not to like disparage them too much, you know. Right. And I think this like. When I th- we talked about last episode, the Bechtel test, which is it measures in film, like how often do women talk to other women, mm, not mm-hmm. talking about men uh, in movies. Mm-hmm. And I think oftentimes, you know, there's just a, there's a lot of wonderful movies out there that were like, this is a great, you know, great director, great writer, you know, great acting, but it doesn't pass the Bechtel test. Mm-hmm. And um, I think, and similarly, maybe there wasn't motive there of like, let's try to keep women out of this story. You know, let's try to. But yeah. it's like an afterthought. Mm-hmm. They just didn't think about it. And if you don't think about it, you tend to go the direction of your culture, the direction of your experience. Yeah. Um, and in this case, male Hollywood directors, right? male writers, they keep those voices out. They keep that story out. Yeah. And we talked, I think we briefly mentioned in our last episode how we can apply the Bechtel test in a way to the Bible and... Um, I, I edit it a bit for the Bible because, I mean, I, I don't know if there's a single instance where a woman talks to another woman about something that doesn't have to do with a man. For one, women don't speak a whole lot in the Bible, which we're going to be addressing in the next episode. Yeah, I saw a tweet this week that said, from a woman who was not a Christian, that said, I have no interest in the Bible. I have no desire to ever read that because it doesn't pass the Bechtel test. So why would I care about it? Oh, wow. That is pretty interesting. And it had thousands of likes thousands of retweets this was a big tweet this week and i was like that's fair that's fair so what would your take be on um it feels like you're trying to give a little bit more uh, be a little more understanding to the people in the time that they were in right i think that i think that just because the bible doesn't pass the bechtel test uh, doesn't even come close um i don't know that that means that we shouldn't read it, but I think it does mean we should be aware of what it is while we go into it. I mean, that's kind of like saying that I will never watch another movie that doesn't pack the, pass the Bechtel test. Well, then you're going to... I mean, some some stories are just worth worth knowing. I mean, I think of a movie like Saving Private Ryan. That's it, there's, It's all men, essentially, in that story. But, but that, that's what that story is about. That doesn't mean that story is not valuable, but it means if you only watch those kinds of movies, then you're going to get a skewed perspective of the world. So similarly, Lord of the Rings, if the Bible is... Ratatouille, yeah. Slumdog Millionaire, <laughs> Avatar. I, you're you're going to have a long list of movies that don't pass. You'd right, more... I'm looking at like the the biggest blockbuster movies that that didn't pass um i mean i think even most of the star wars movies um which even even some of the more recent ones where um ray this woman is actually the the lead character even they struggle to pass some of these tests because most of the secondary characters around ray are all men phantom menace no attack of the clones no revenge of the sith no rogue one yes a new Mm, hope good one uh no empire I strikes think back is the no. only woman who even speaks in <laughs> pro- jedi in no probably the original three force awakens yes last jedi yes rise of skywalker yes and that is why i argue that the the um sequel trilogy is actually the best but i'll get taken down for that so i won't argue that too far here anyway <laughs> i could talk me. about star wars me. for a while specifically. by star wars fans out there maybe she would be taken down not by me mm-hmm. but Anyway, all that to say, um, regarding regarding the Bible, I think we shouldn't just write it off completely for not passing the Bechtel test. We should go, uh, yeah, of course, we shouldn't expect this kind of a test or this kind of a text to pass because it's 2,000 years old. It was written in first century, I mean, and give or take a couple hundred years specifically for the Old Testament, but 
we wouldn't expect this kind of a text to pass. So I don't think we should be give, putting modern um, standards on the Bible. Instead, we should be using an ancient lens to look at it in the sense of when we come at it, we need to not say this is this complete, perfect, inerrant, infallible um, book. Instead, when you say this is a 2,000-year-old text that has 2,000-year-old perspectives and 2,000-year-old issues, and also t- maybe 2,000-year-old wisdom, like they're on both sides. This it shouldn't we shouldn't be throwing out a text that has lasted for this many years and that has provided stories of value to people all over the world, but also at the same time we shouldn't ignore the fact that it's written by all men and there are very few women who participate, even fewer that speak um and we need to pay attention. So, kind of my own little vectal test that I've formed for the Bible is that can we can we think of women at all in the Bible whose stories aren't about their male relative? So not 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 trying to find women who speak to each other, but just are there female characters whose stories aren't about their male relatives? I'll, oh, it's tough. Can That's you really think? Tough. I'll let, yeah. maybe let us all think together about this for a second. Try and form a little list. Pause this show. No. Um. <laughs> Turn to your neighbor and discuss. Yeah, that's tough. I mean, the first one that came to my head. Now, I mean, she had a man inside, <laughs> a man baby. <laughs> I know where this is going. Uh, Jesus was inside of her, but uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, mm-hmm. the story is uh, a bit about her, but we, we wouldn't even know of her if it wasn't for mm-hmm. Jesus. So I don't think that that's really true. I know I can see why you thought of that, but I also agree that I think the story is primarily about Jesus. Uh, one in, in one of the courses I taught, we asked this question, and some of the, the participants helped come up with a few ideas. One of those was Rahab. Um, she's a woman who was a prostitute who ended up saving a number of Israel's spies. Um, her male relative is not even mentioned, from what I know. So that's that's something. Yeah, someone. It's, it's a start. It's a start. There's also possibly the Queen of Sheba. You know that we're getting desperate when we have the Queen of Sheba as <laughs> yeah. the second one we've mentioned on this list. Yeah. Um, she came to visit Solomon, so in a sense, you know, maybe he's um, a big part of the story, but uh, but she's not in any way dependent on him, related to him, anything like that. I honestly can't think of anymore. Probably the most significant, like the maybe the. In some ways, the closest would be the story of Ruth and Naomi. You have two women who are, I mean, their story does have a lot to do with their male relatives, as in, you know, their husbands and sons who have died, and they're working on finding new husbands and ending the, the whole, you know, the happy ending is that they, she has a, a new son. So in that sense, it is about their male relatives. So it doesn't kind of pass our little test, but it is maybe one of the most significant examples of two women um, living a life and a story together and um, committing to each other. And um, so that is a valuable moment. But all that to say, we're coming up pretty short. And if we were to flip-flop this and to say, you know, list out some male characters whose stories don't revolve around their women, I mean, I don't know if you could find a male character whose story does revolve around their female relative. Like, it's, it's just... A ridiculous, um, ridiculous dichotomy that there are so few women who have any role outside of supporting their their men, and that brings us back to something that we kind of mentioned earlier in the episode, which is just what does this teach the people who are taking in this book, especially children who are. I mean, I think of myself hearing this read from the, my earliest memories, both at home and at church, and pretty much everywhere else. <laughs> it's a pretty uh, Christian upbringing. And that, what does that teach you when the only women that you're hearing about are in the supportive roles and for the most part, only present because of their relationship to a man? Um, and that the women are inconsequential to the story. And then when we're talking mm. about a text like this, we've said this is the word of God. This is the story about the most important character in history. And in that story, the women are inconsequential. Mm. The women are not important. 
Yeah. Or not as important as the men, at least. I have to at least say that. Absolutely. And I think it's, I mean, I kind of feel that in my gut, even like hearing you say that, because that is true. I think as um, young women growing up in this, we, whether it's ever said to us or not, we can't help but truly believe that our our presence and our voices and our roles don't really matter. Mm. And I think a lot of Christian women of this age are struggling with, you know, am I only important as someone who, you know, takes care of my husband and my children? And, part, you know, part of us maybe feels bad. We're like, well, of course, my husband and my children are important, but but is that all that I'm here for? Because that's really all that anyone in the Bible is present for. So we don't have a lot of examples of other ways to live. I mean, so you mentioned last episode that you think women may have actually been more prevalent mm. in the story, specifically the story of Jesus. And um, when we, because we were talking about why didn't Jesus change this, right? Why did yeah. Jesus not make a few of his disciples women, let's say? There was, there was a chance to, uh, to change the status quo, to change the culture and make a st- that he was in and make a statement. And I hear this used a lot. I'm sure you've heard it used mm-hmm. that Jesus could have changed this. Jesus didn't change this. So why are you trying to change this? Right. I've I've actually met with a pastor of a church I used to be um, part of, and and kind of asked those questions, saying said to him that I a lot of my struggle with faith right now is over the way that um, the way that women are sidelined, and that even Jesus didn't include women in his disciples, and and the response that I got was that. Like Jesus, he just wanted to, he was creating a new Israel. And so it needed to be 12 men. Mm. And I just thought, is that really the best response that we have? Why couldn't he have made a new Israel with six men and six women? Wouldn't that have been an even better new Israel? Right. So yeah, these are the real questions. And and I think, I think we'll have probably a whole episode in the series about specifically Jesus and women, because that's, I think a lot of the, um, the meat and what, you know, cause if we're, it's easy for us to I think, say, that there's flaws through a lot of the Bible, like especially the Old Testament and maybe some of the early church, but but we still have to hold to this idea that Jesus is the perfect example of everything. And so then how do we explain if if we feel like maybe Jesus wasn't the perfect example of some things? Um, so we'll dig into that more in some future episodes. Yeah, you hinted at like there's, mm. specifically in the story of Jesus, and we'll get to more examples in later episodes, right, right, that there was maybe women m- were more prevalent, and they were possibly removed, and that sounded really juicy. <laughs> so I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah, yeah. Like I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, we were going to talk about s- w- some stories that were chosen or not chosen based on um, patriarchal elements, and we addressed you know Judith versus Esther and Ruth. But then I also mentioned we want to talk about stories that are actually in the Bible that were maybe changed or, and edited to slowly remove um, some of the, the prominence of women. Yeah, the, uh, and the editing, I mean, that's not, you know, a brand new concept to listeners of this show. You should be probably familiar with that. We did a series called um, How the Bible Works, where we talk about, it's kind of this like mosaic, right? Where like different pieces are clipped and edited and some copy and paste going on. And um, and that there, this was done at at later points, and as a different author comes along, they they take pieces of this and they kind of stretch it or add this in or and it wasn't it's not like deception isn't the goal here it's um, it's out of respect and out of uh, trying to honor these works and repurpose them for just like a quilt really I mean it's or like a mosaic. Um, and that's the imagery that we used in that series. So you can go check that series out. Um, you're probably familiar with those type of concepts. And so you're saying that happened in the story of Jesus as well? Yeah. No, I'm actually really glad you said that because I think a lot of people, they can maybe hear what I'm about to say to looking at some of these changes that were made through a couple of the gospel texts um, and hear that as an attack of the gospels, but it's not at all. And the fact that the fact that they're 
we're going to look at this same story that's told four different ways. The fact that all four of those are present in the New Testament goes to show that the early Christians who were putting together this New Testament didn't see that as an issue, that there, that there are these changes. They didn't just pick one gospel and say, this is what we're going to... They were like, yeah, there's four. They're all different. They have a lot of similarities and a lot of differences. And that's okay because we want all four of these pieces of literature because it's just such a different culture, like you were saying. It's, it's not a, a reporting culture. This is not a printing press culture. There's, there's no such thing as like 100% accuracy, essentially. So nobody was really expecting that. Um, they, they wanted four different takes on who this figure of J- Jesus was. So yeah, let's go into this with that perspective of, you know, we're not digging up some new horrible thing about the Bible. This has been there all along, the entire time. Mm. Um, and it's, it's right there for us to see. The reason that maybe we haven't seen it is just because we've been taught to not see it. And so that's what I want to unveil right now. Hopefully not, not taking us to some new way of seeing the Bible, hopefully getting us back to the way that the actual authors would have meant for it to be read. So let's get into it. Uh, open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark. Sort of, sort of kidding, sort of not. But actually, I'm going to have you pull up. Um, if you would look up Mark 14, 3 to 9 for us. We're going to walk through each of the Gospels in the order they were written. Um, confusingly, the, the way we read the Bible, they're listed Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But that's not. They were actually written in the order Mark, Matthew, Luke, John. Matthew and Luke being about the same time. Mark being the earliest. John being the latest. So, so we're starting the Gospel of Mark, which is the most kind of cut and dry, black and white, uh, this happens, this happens, this happens, not a lot of elaboration, not as much dialogue as the three remaining Gospels. So we're going to start there and we're going to, Mark 14 is the story of the woman who anoints Jesus. And would you read verses three to nine for us? And then we're going to kind of go through and note a few important details. Sure. Okay. So while he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar, a very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. What are some thoughts you have just reading through that? Yeah, I just, I mean, first of all, I just remember this always being used. You know, I I come from... um, a ministry background as a pastor, church planter, um, urban missionary, and doing lots of work with the poor. Mm-hmm. And I remember this being used. I think some thought I was, you know, too radical or like trying to call people to too high of a, a standard in like how we're going to love poor people and take care of them and give our money away and, and all these types of things. Um, and I, I remember this being used as like, hey, you know, you're always going to have the poor... <laughs> almost like uh you know there's yeah don't freak out there's more important things like there's yes there's always gonna be poor people i mean i had multiple people use that and say that to me um which is obviously not what this is saying here i don't think anyone would look at jesus and be like yeah jesus was like anti-poor or something yeah i remember i was i mean whenever some church would build some giant new building or even like you know cathedrals throughout europe i was always as a as a radical on fire teenager i was like this is a horrible use of money when we could be helping the poor and yeah people would quote this story and say well look she used this expensive perfume that's like how we build expensive buildings I was oh, like, yeah. ah, something here just doesn't yeah. seem it doesn't seem to equate yeah yeah but Which, that's obviously not the <laughs> where we're going with this it's just something that i that i remembered about that no no totally so some of the details that i want to um specifically look at we're going to trace throughout each of um, t- telling of this story. First of all, what identity do we have for the woman here? I mean, not much. It just says a woman. So okay, yeah. she has so, a jar. No name. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A woman no with name a jar. And also no, like no attribution of like who she is or where she came from or what kind of a woman she is. Right. Just a generic woman. 
We don't know anything else about her in this context. Okay, so where did she uh, where did she anoint Jesus? Like on what part of his body? Um, on his head. Yeah, and that is an incredibly significant um, statement. Do you know or are you remembering any other stories in the Bible where someone's anointed on their head? I mean, kings, right? In the Old Testament, a king would be anointed mm-hmm. on the head. So it does seem like that's a pretty important location in uh, in anointing someone. Yes, it is incredibly important. The word anointed in Hebrew is actually the word, um, turns into the word Messiah. Like the Messiah in Hebrew literally means anointed one. So you cannot be the Messiah without being anointed. This is the only story in the whole gospel of Mark. And as we'll find out really in all gospels, the only story of Jesus being anointed. So this is essential to him being the Messiah is this moment. And, and yet I feel like I've never heard that maybe preached that like, this is the moment he's declared the Messiah. Yeah. I mean, I've done a lot of street evangelism, um, done a lot of preaching the gospel to people. And I never told this story. Um, it says wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. I've never, Mm. I don't know that I've ever preached this story, told this story. Definitely not every time I told someone the gospel, the good news. I never shared this. I've never done that. So that's (laughs) interesting. I think that's probably the norm, right? That this is not being shared where the gospel is being preached. I mean, I think most of us, like even maybe listeners just hearing you read the passage when it gets to the end there and say, wherever the gospel is preached, what she's done will be told in memory of her. Like, I don't know about you, but I feel like hearing that growing up, I I didn't really get it. I was kind of like, why? Like, why? One, it doesn't feel like it was that important, partially because we don't really tell the story that much, and partially because it just didn't really make sense. It's basically just taught to us as, like, this woman really liked Jesus and put some nice perfume on his head. You know, why is why is Jesus saying wherever the gospel is preached, this story will be told, and not even in memory of me, but in memory of her. Yeah, me, me either. I think that's kind of significant. Yeah, and the last significant element is the location of the story within um, within the gospel. So it's, it's not just placed somewhere, anywhere in the, in the story of Jesus. It's specifically placed in Mark 14, immediately before... Judas betrays Jesus and essentially the passion begins this, you know, Jesus going and the Passover and the crucifixion. And like, it's, it's immediately prior to that, which is why he says, you know, she's preparing me for burial. It also goes to show that, I mean, all the way up until the very moment that this is going to begin, the disciples have not truly understood or believed him. They have not understood who he really is, and they have not believed what he said that he's going to die. Whereas this woman, she understands that he's the Messiah, and she takes it into her own hands to anoint him. And she believes what he says that he's going to die, and so she's preparing him for his burial. So it's pretty significant that uh, an unnamed woman, which a lot of scholars think um, is partially just because she's like almost a symbol of a woman in general, like a someone who is a, a, a minority, someone who is not in power, someone who was not the privileged one in the situation, those are the ones who see Jesus and understand him and believe him. And that that, that might even be the, the gospel that Jesus is pointing out in that moment is that, I mean, it's right along those lines of like the last will be first and, you know, the kingdom of God belongs to the meek and the humble. And so that's that a woman not the ones that they expected. A woman is the one who sees and understands and believes and takes action. And maybe, I don't know, maybe that's why Jesus said that last line about wherever the gospel is preached, this story will be told. I'm not really sure. That could be part of it. But all I know is we have something to learn here. So moving to the next gospel. Gospel of, we're going to go with Matthew. Matthew and Luke were written around the same time. Um, but uh, we're going to start with Matthew Matthew and Luke both drew on Mark as a source, but they also drew on other sources as well. Um, And they pieced together uh, their version of 
the gospel as kind of a literary compilation. They weren't like trying to say, this is what happened and everyone else is wrong. They're saying, this is the story, the way I want it to be told to emphasize certain points. And we'll look at kind of what those points are. So if you could look up Matthew 26, 6 to 13, if you could read those for us. Okay. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar, a very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste? they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. All right, so that's essentially exactly the same story, like essentially word for word, um, which just goes to show that um, Mark or Matthew used Mark as a source and essentially copy and pasted in an ancient way this story in, which was a very normal practice. Right. We have the anointing on the head. We have this happened in Bethany. We have Simon, the leper. Um, we have the disciples. Yeah, we have an unnamed woman. And uh, the the location of the story um, is also in this one, if we were looking at the context, also right before the betrayal of Jesus. So the same significant kind of placement. And we have that key line of truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. I want to just highlight again, (laughs) the line that we forgot to mention. That's probably the, uh, in my opinion, my favorite line, which is the leave, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? I think we could Mm. embroider that on some pillows. Um, So yes, Matthew and Mark, essentially the same. Maybe we need to introduce a line of almost radical merchandise, and one is a, a hoodie <laughs> that says, leave her alone. Why, Why are, are you, you bothering, bothering her? her? Quote Jesus. <laughs> yes. Okay, I'm in. Feel free to um, send in if you would like us to get this started as a Kickstarter. Um, okay, moving on to Luke. I'm actually going to look this one up because it's, it's a longer passage, and so we're going to skip over some of the parts that aren't relevant to what we're talking about right now. But this is Luke chapter 7 verses 36 to 50. You can read the whole thing on your own time if you would like. But um, the opening line says, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at that table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. And then from there, Jesus goes on to tell a story about um, a person who owed money and who was forgiven. And it turns into the story about forgiveness and how this woman has been forgiven much and therefore she loves much and how it's an honor, a wonderful thing that she's done for him to you know, kiss his feet and wipe them with her hair. And then he tells her that her sins are forgiven and says, your faith has saved you, go in peace. And that's the end of the story. I think I grew up, and I think a lot of listeners that are grew up familiar with Christianity, we're told to harmonize the gospels a bit, right? So it's mm-hmm. less about looking at the differences. That wasn't as big of a deal. It was looking at the kind of, you almost mush these stories together. So it's like, oh, now we have more information about this woman. She was actually a sinner. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And Jesus actually told this other story too about forgiveness. And Mark and Matthew just left out, you know, the the whole context of the night and all the other things that happened. Right. right? Like Luke's just giving us more details about the exact same thing. That's kind of the idea we were given. Exactly. But in this harmonizing, what is missed is like the, where she's anointing Jesus. Um, The feet and the head, like those are complete opposites. Yeah, literally opposites. Absolutely. And that's um, probably the one of the most significant. Well, there's two, no, three, oh, four, four significant differences between <laughs> this one and those of Matthew and Mark. <laughs> okay. First is um, the identity of the woman. We're told here that she's a sinner, a pretty, pretty bad sinner, according to this Pharisee, probably suggesting some kind of sexual sin that she's like a, a prostitute or something like that. Um, so that's a, that's a new detail that we're not given in any of the other accounts, which then ends up really being the theme of the story because it turns into this whole thing about how she's been forgiven. Right. 
the the location of the anointing on his body like you mentioned is moved from the f- head to the feet which n- makes it no longer a messianic statement at all this is not the anointing of a messiah it's a you know desperate humble woman just pouring herself out on begging for forgiveness on the feet of Jesus which is a very different move uh the another movement is the the movement of the story um pl- within the text. So whereas in Matthew and Mark, it was placed right at right before the passion of the Christ. Here, it's in Luke 7. It's actually kind of just sandwiched in this whole section about Jesus and like women or children or poor people. It's kind of how Jesus interacts with um, the, the lowly and the humble. Hmm. So that's the context. It's not a context of uh, making Jesus the Messiah. It's a context of how Jesus reaches down to us, essentially. Right. And then... Lastly, there's no statement about this being a, a significant gospel moment about the story being told in memory of her. And for anyone who's wondering, like, hey, this actually sounds like a totally different story. I think you're missing the point. Like, this is just not the same. Well, okay, there's there's a chance that that could be. But this there is no other story about the anointing of Jesus in Luke. Like, this is the one story of a woman who comes and pours any kind of anointment on Jesus. It's not like that powerful messianic moment happens later in Luke. It doesn't happen anywhere other than right here. Um, and for something that was so significant in Matthew and Mark, for it to com- either, whether or not it completely disappears or is edited into this one, like either of those are a significant statement. Uh, most scholars would say that this the one we just read is kind of the the new rendition of the story in Luke. Um, but even if someone wants to say, no, I think this is just a different story entirely, then we have to at least acknowledge that the other story was removed completely, which it's almost worse. I mean, either of those, either of those are strange alternatives. So that's Luke. And lastly, we're going to move to John. Could you look up John 12 and read us verses one through eight? All right. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. All right. So this one feels a little bit more similar to the first two but still a couple changes, right? So first of all, the identity of the woman. Well, we're told the person is Mary. Right. Sister of Martha and Lazarus. So she's given a very specific identity that um, is probably a, a, a literary edition by John. The Gospel of John is by far the most kind of elaborate and detail-oriented. John loves his characters and loves creating this um, this world of people around Jesus. So... Again, that wouldn't have been like some horrible, oh my gosh, John's making stuff up. It's just that would have been a normal practice at the time was as you're developing the literature to add add in identities um, for people. So so I think likely John was, you know, taking this, the common story that we heard in Mark and Matthew and just adapting it to fit. And so for him, like the, the woman, it made sense for the woman to be Mary. So, But he also moved the anointing from the head to the feet as well. Mm. Yeah, and that's more of a a Luke move. So, you know, what kind of where what which version of the story did did John know? I mean, it's a good question. Maybe and this is an oral culture, like he likely wasn't sitting down with copies of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He had heard different stories through, you know, Christians as they sit around and, and tell the stories they remember, and maybe they have you know one section from a Gospel of Luke that they read together over and like there's. The way that they got information was not, we we can just look it up, all four of them right now, but they didn't have those kinds of resources. So mm. the story, the way he writes it, is a, a compilation of both the way he has heard the story told and the way he wants to now tell the story. And that's just part of the work of biblical scholars is to try and piece apart which parts are which. 
So the movement from the head to the feet, yeah, again, like we said about Luke, takes away the significance of that messianic statement. It's no longer a story of Jesus being anointed as the Messiah. It also is missing that statement at the very end about this being in memory of her and about this being essential to the gospel. So, which is likely because, I mean, as we now see, if it has the anointing on the head, it also has that line at the end about this being an essential part of the gospel. If it has her anointing him on the feet, it doesn't have that line. Because it's not essential. Because it's not the messianic move. It's not about him being the Messiah. Exactly. At least that's my interpretation of it. And then lastly, the placement within the story. um, It's not placed immediately before the betrayal and the passion as um, it is in the originals. It's But it's also not as far away and irrelevant as in Luke. So it's in this case, it's placed right before the the entry into Jerusalem and you know Palm Sunday and all of that. So it's it's a little bit significant, but um, not as not as obvious as Matthew and Mark. So we've walked through all four Gospels and looked at this story and the different ways that it's told. And what we see is over time, Mark being the earliest, moving to Matthew and then Luke and then John. The woman's story is slowly decreased in value and importance. Oh, we see the the anointing moving away from the head, and that statement about this wherever the gospel is told being removed, and her identity being suddenly she's a sinner and you know she's weeping and and or or she's this specific sister of this more significant man. So why might this have happened over? you know, 40 or 50 years after Christ between Mark and John. I mean, scholars think a lot of different things. One of the major theories is just that in a patriarchal culture, which again was just the norm, is not to say that these people were somehow bad. It's just the way that their culture was. It's a little bit uncomfortable for uh, a male-led movement to have a story where an unnamed woman is the one who comes in and believes, understands, anoints. Right. I mean, she's really she's like taking the role of a king in this situation, a king yeah. or a prophet who anoints the the Messiah. And I mean, that's that's kind of threatening right in front of all the disciples in a in a church that is ends up being led by these disciples. I mean, especially Peter. This whole church is take is, you know, built upon Peter, and yet even he was right there and never did this. Mm. So I want to read a quote from a feminist biblical scholar named Elizabeth Schussler Fiorenza. This is from a book of hers that's actually titled "In Memory of Her," and here's what she says. She says, "Quote." In the Passion account of Mark's gospel, three disciples figure prominently. On the one hand, two of the twelve, two of the twelve, Judas who betrays Jesus and Peter who denies him, and on the other, the unnamed woman who anoints Jesus. But while the stories of Judas and Peter are engraved in the memory of Christians, the story of the woman is virtually forgotten. Although Jesus pronounces in Mark, and truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what she's done will be told in memory of her. The woman's prophetic sign action did not become part of the gospel knowledge of Christians. Even her name is lost to us. Wherever the gospel is proclaimed and the Eucharist is celebrated, another story is told. The story of the apostle who betrayed Jesus. The name of the betrayer is remembered, but the name of the faithful disciple is forgotten because she was a woman. Hmm. Reading that from um, Dr. Firenze, also it kind of inspired me, and I want to suggest... You know, on a, on a bit of a different note, maybe less of a technical biblical note and more of a personal spiritual note for people who are looking for ways to change how they practice Christianity in in their spiritual daily lives. I think that we could try to come back to whatever Jesus' version of the gospel was in a small way by by truly remembering this story. I mean, he said, wherever the gospel is preached, this will be told in memory of her. And so maybe there's something here that we have been missing. So I think, I mean, if I was going to reform Christianity and, you know, be the next Martin Luther or something, that maybe one of the sacraments that I would want to put in place would be um, anointing of some kind. Like maybe when you go up 
to the front and take communion, take the blood and the bread and take the bread and the blood. And, you know, we're told on the night Jesus was betrayed, this happened. Well, maybe we also need to be telling this other story that happened right before that. The one that Jesus said was potentially even more significant. Maybe we need to invite, you know, a woman from the congregation to be the one who anoints every member with oil that day. Some, I just think that there could be ways that we need to come back to the significance of, of this story and, and somehow the significance of women's role um, in the story. Yeah, you got me tearing up over here. <laughs> That's really powerful, I think. And part of me is like still, but that's not connected to the gospel. And so that, that as a practice, it's like, that would feel so disconnected from the next part of the, mm. you know, the service that we, that where it goes into, you know, the, the Eucharist or communion. Um, and it's like, well, it shouldn't be, apparently it shouldn't be disconnected. Mm. And it only feels disconnected because we haven't been telling that part of the story for a couple thousand years as part of mm-hmm. what's significant about the gospel. And um, so wherever you are on this spectrum of um, thinking the gospel is significant or not, or believing in Jesus and God and whatever that looks like for you, because listeners of this show are all over the place and you are all welcome here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We still can say that in whatever experience we've had in Christianity, at whatever point in our life that was introduced to us, likely we missed this part of the story. And our imagination wasn't shaped by this aspect of the story. And so mm-hmm. we don't think about what the connections are between this and the gospel because we haven't been thinking about it for very long. We haven't read a lot of stuff on it. We haven't heard it preached. Um, and so wherever you are on this spectrum and on this journey, you're welcome here. And likely this is something that you missed as well. This makes me think of a question. And, um, you know, if you're a longtime listener of the show, you know that we have this second podcast we do called Utterly Heretical. It's uh, a bit more raw, unedited. We share some more stories, um, get into um, just more of what we think a bit. That's for supporters of the show. You can go to almostheretical.com slash utterlyheretical and get access to that Um, But we did an episode where we answer this question that we get so often, which is which translation of the Bible do we use? Mm -hmm. We get it all the time. And the reason I'm thinking about this right now is because as we talk about patriarchy and we talk about these uh, four different versions of this story in the Gospels here, Mm -hmm. I think there's a a trend to, and there's there's some good to this, um, to try to change some of the words in, that we have in the Bible. If it says mankind, let's change it to humankind. Okay, yeah. Like creating just gender-neutral translations of the Bible. Right. And so I think part of this question of like, which translation of the Bible do you use is getting at like, what's the most accurate? And I think you also have to look at like, if you boil it all down and we get to the foundation of these texts, there are four different versions of this same story. So it doesn't matter which mm-hmm. translation you use. At the at the root, even in the original text, there are things that are in one that aren't in another. There's potentially this story of this woman being kind of written out, um, not you know, for whatever reason, but it's being written out over the course of time. Mm-hmm. And that's not going to go away with a different English translation of the Bible. Yeah, absolutely. I think that people... Um, you know, as you said, well-intentioned, trying to create these gender-neutral translations in order to, you know, um, acknowledge that, you know, in Greek, the the male plural of a certain verb actually was meant to refer to both male and female. So, so there's some there are some good actual changes that were made. But if you pick up a, a gender-neutral translation of the Bible, thinking, "Aha! I now have the non-patriarchal version of the Bible." That's not going to be the case um, because, as we've talked about throughout this whole episode, you're still going to have 85% of the characters be male. You're still going to have essentially no women talking to each other or part of a, a story that's not about men. And yeah, even like this story we just talked about, you're still going to have this woman's significance diminishing over the four Gospels. Um, creating a gender-neutral translation isn't going to solve any of that. In fact, I think it can 
kind of damage our perspective of the Bible because then we go into it thinking we've solved a problem that we haven't, thinking that this is now um, the Bible's the, exactly the way that it should be when we what we need to do is say, this text is just patriarchal because that's where it came from. And so let's read it honestly and see what we can still take from it. Yeah. And that's what we're going to do. That's what we're doing in this series. Um, we have lots more to come, and we're glad that you're on this journey with us as we look through the lens of woman at the Bible to see how we can reframe it, reimagine God, reimagine the Bible. Um, I'm really excited to keep going. So where are we headed next in this series as we move on? Yeah, I'm actually so excited about where we're going next. And that is to, first of all, kind of looking at the the voices of women, both the silences that exist in the Bible and the voices that actually do exist in texts outside the Bible, but surrounding them, like texts from the same time periods, but ones that we've probably never heard of before. Um, so we're going to dig into those um, things like Dead Sea Scrolls and um, other Greek texts that have some of the same characters we know and love, but doing things we've never seen them do before. So that's going to be fun. And then also throughout the series, we're going to be figuring out kind of the way forward and thinking about, you know, if we have a, a Bible that's written by 100% men, then how do we how do we compensate for that today? Like, how do we start to incorporate voices of women and maybe, maybe texts throughout Christian history that are written by women? Like, we do have those. At the time of the, the New Testament and the Old Testament, women weren't doing a lot of writing just because of the way culture was. You know, women didn't get the same level of education as men, didn't have access to the same resources. But over the millennia since then, women have written more and more and more. So how can we start to incorporate that more? So we'll look at all of that as we figure out a better way forward. All right. Well, thanks for being on this journey with us. And we want you to be a part of this as well. So as we mentioned at the beginning of this episode, we love reading all of your emails, tweets, Instagram posts, all of that. Um, It does shape how we create this series um, Mm -hmm. because this is for you and we want to do this with you. Please know that we do read every email that comes in and we want to be responding to more of them. But each, but as, as Nate just said, the, they do really shape um, what we want to talk about and the things that are important to those of you who are listening. So continue to write in and tell us what maybe didn't sit right or things that you want to know more about or a way that this has been helping and healing and um, all of that matters. You can get in contact with us at almostheretical.com. All right, we'll catch you next time.